This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The Sacketts in Idaho just wanted to build a house. Federal regulators disagreed, and litigation has been ongoing now for many years. At the core of the case is the degree to which federal regulators can prevent development on private lands close enough to so-called navigable waterways. The implications for the private uses of private property going forward are considerable. The Sacketts had their day in court, the Supreme Court, yesterday. I spoke with Charles Yates of the Pacific Legal Foundation and Cato's Tommy Berry. This is where I have to admit my ignorance. I thought I understood pretty well the broad issues of the Sackett case. Is it cases or case? Because I know this is multiple times that this uh, family has come before the U.S. Supreme Court now. I felt completely lost listening to the oral argument in the various discussions about how close a piece of property is to navigable water, the differences between adjacency uh, and other terms of art used in tests to determine whether or not a uh, some water is able to be regulated by the uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, among other agencies. Charles, please give me the big picture of what the Sacketts are facing here. Yeah, certainly, and 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 thank you, Caleb. So, as you as you intimated in in your opening. Uh, in Sackett, the, the Supreme Court at the, the highest level is, is considering the scope of the federal government's authority to regulate wetlands on private property uh, pursuant to the Clean Water Act. And the case is a culmination of a, a really a decades-long fight to curb EPA's weaponization of the Clean Water Act against private property owners. So, Im- importantly, a favorable outcome will set important precedent and, and provided much-needed regulatory relief, not just for the, for the Sacketts, but for countless American property owners. So I can explain what, what happened to the Sacketts and, and how that came about. Uh, so Chantel and Mike were Sackett in 2007, uh, broke ground on a, on a vacant residential lot in the Idaho Panhandle with the intention of building a, a single-family home. Uh, shortly after breaking ground, federal officials entered the property ordered all work be stopped uh, until further notice. And then they followed up about six months later, threatening the Sacketts with tens of thousands of dollars in daily penalties uh, should they continue their project or fail to mitigate the work that they'd already done. Now, importantly, the the agencies, their, their claim of authority, they asserted that the Sacketts lot contains a wetland that qualifies as a navigable water of the United States. And I think it that point, people might be wondering how that could happen. How is a vacant residential lot, residentially zoned, possibly a navigable water of the United States? And this goes back to the to the Clean Water Act. So the Clean Water Act generally it uh, prohibits the discharge of pollutants into so-called navigable waters, and to do so, it creates a, a federal permitting regime. Now, importantly, that permitting regime is backed by ruinous civil and criminal penalties, truly draconian penalties. Now, importantly. The term navigable waters is sort of the outer limit of the federal government's scope of authority, but starting in the 1970s, EPA and the Army Corps began interpreting that term incredibly broadly to the point where they're interpreting it as a a nearly limitless grant of authority to regulate land use. By 1986, they were uh, interpreting the term to allow them to, to regulate basically any damp plot of land in the country, any tributary, wetland, anything that might have water on it. So it's this incredibly capacious interpretation of the definition. Um, 
Now, since 2000, the last time the Supreme Court uh, addressed this issue was in 2006 in the case of Rapanis versus United States. And in that case, a majority of the Supreme Court did rebuke the agencies for their uh, for their overbroad interpretation of their own authority. But the court, importantly, in 2006, couldn't reach a consensus as to the appropriate test for wetlands jurisdiction. And that's really what the Supreme Court is is revisiting here. So in 2006, uh, Justice Kennedy came up with this broad significant nexus test, right? And this test allows the agencies to assert authority over basically any feature that has some attenuated connection to a traditional navigable water, which is an extraordinarily broad interpretation. And that's the interpretation that the the agencies utilize to assert authority over the Sackett's lot. The Sackett's property is separated uh, from Priest Lake by a row of houses. It's separated from a man-made ditch on the other side of a, an elevated road. And according to the, the agency's uh, significant nexus analysis, because there exists a shallow subsurface flow flowing from the ditch on the other side of the road to the Sackett's lot, because that ditch then runs several thousand feet down into a creek that then runs into Priest Lake, and because the Sackett's lot can be, quote-unquote, aggregated with wetlands on the other side of that road, uh, the Sackett's property is itself a, quote-unquote, navigable water of the United States. When I think about navigable waters, I think about Huckleberry Finn uh, on a boat or at least a pallet <laughs> floating down a river. How, how does my understanding of navigable waters uh, insufficient for the purposes of federal regulation. Right, and that, that goes back to the, the agencies beginning in the 1970s. They started interpreting the term navigable waters not in accordance with its plain meaning or accordance with the, the historic meaning that term has been given in, in other legislation and by the federal courts, but really in accordance with what they view as the, the sort of broad goals of the statute. So in the agency's view, because the purpose of the statute broadly is to improve water quality in the United States, that means that basically anything that they consider to have some effect on a navigable water in terms of pollution control, flood runoff, things of that nature, is itself a navigable water. So it's really uh, a subjugation of the, the statute's limiting principles to its broad purposes, which is a, a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous interpretation. Uh, Tommy, to hear uh, Charles tell it, this has echoes of Wickard v. Filburn, <laughs> that is a broad interpretation of something that at one time had a much more plain and much more narrow meaning. Uh, in, in the Wickard case, it was interstate commerce, and in this case, it's navigable waters. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that uh, it was interesting to listen to the argument and to read the briefs because uh, Pacific Legal Foundation had to make some strategic choices here about sort of how broad or narrow a challenge to bring. And uh, to some extent, uh, this is really a narrow and specific question. It's just about wetlands touching or adjacent to whatever that may mean, uh, more traditional navigable waters. But certainly the Commerce Clause issue is in the background here, and it was on some of the justices' minds, including Justice Thomas, who asked if there's a body of water contained entirely within one state, how can you really say that that's a part of interstate commerce? And the government has a theory that, well, you can drive on a highway to a lake and then 
boat across the lake and then get on another highway and go to another state. Um, but uh, clearly, that's unlikely in general to be the fastest way to uh, go through interstate commerce. And then the smaller the smaller body of water you get, the more and more implausible it is that it's actually going to be a channel of interstate commerce. So uh, what did we learn from the oral argument, Charles? Uh, I heard some justices giving a pretty tough questioning to both uh, Pacific Legal Foundation attorneys and uh, the government's attorneys. And it seems that there's a problem of piles here. That is, you know, one grain of salt isn't a pile, but two grains of salt is a pile. They're trying to find out, well, what is the pile here? What is the what is the regulable amount of water connected to some other body of water. Yeah, so it, it's important to note all of the justices seem to key in on on that issue here. That is, uh, assuming that the scope of the Clean Water Act goes beyond quote-unquote traditional navigable waters and includes some wetlands, uh, where do we draw that line, right? And in Rapanos, the plurality drew a line basically saying that uh, any uh, any wetland, in order to be regulated as a navigable water, must itself be indistinguishable from that navigable water. So there must be uh, a sort of line drawing problem that exists, and there must be some sort of ambiguity in the topography such that you know the ordinary person couldn't tell the the difference between where the wetlands end and where the the traditional navigable water begins. Now uh, the uh, significant nexus test, there's no such line drawing distinction. The significant nexus test basically says anything that affects traditional navigable waters, that's how we draw the line. So it's this complicated sort of hydrological analysis that needs to occur. And I think importantly, all of the justices, even the liberals on the court, seem to key in on that precise problem. They seem to key in on the issue that for the ordinary person, and considering this as a statute with enormous civil penalties, and people can even do time in, in federal prison for violating its terms, they seem to key on in this issue that there has to be a line that's drawn somewhere. All right. So how are, you know, based on what we heard, do we have any sense of how that line is going to be drawn? Well, the Sackets have offered uh, a framework uh, based on the Scalia plurality, whereby that line will be drawn if there is some kind of physical and natural barrier separating the wetlands from a true water uh, then the wetlands on the other side of that barrier cannot be regulated. Now, that seemed to carry the day with uh, with Gorsuch and Thomas and some of the other justices, but Kagan, she seemed less convinced on that particular issue, and she seemed to be looking for some kind of middle way. I mean, she, Justice Kagan uh, clearly recognized the problems with the status quo, but she didn't seem fully sold on the Sackett's test, and she asked both uh, advocates if there was some kind of middle way, and it was interesting uh, neither the government nor uh, nor nor the Sackett's counsel uh, were able to offer such a middle way because the, there seems to be just a fundamental disagreement over how do you draw that line. The government wants to expand its power to the extent possible, uh, and I think ordinary property owners uh, want a, an administrable test that that isn't going to result in them being thrown in in prison or being fined tens of thousands of millions of dollars for uh, merely negligent activity. So, uh, uh, Tommy. The, the notion that there are criminal penalties associated with engaging in activity on your own private property that uh, has some sort of relationship to bodies of water or rivers in the United States without hiring expensive attorneys 
to try to parse all of this information, it seems uh, almost impossible for someone to know whether or not they'll face criminal penalties for taking action without either spending a great deal of money, and that might not even result in a clear answer, or uh, seeking permission directly from the government and letting them say no on whatever basis they decide. That's exactly right. And I think that's the single strongest point in favor of the uh, test put forward by Pacific Legal Foundation, that it's essentially an eyeball test, that it's something that you can determine without hiring those expensive lawyers or expensive site surveyors, because it's simply a common sense uh, look at the river and then look at the water and does the wetland on your property, if there is one, flow uh, directly into it? Is there literal physical touching? Anyone can be aware of that and can see that for themselves. Once you get to notions of adjacency that are not literal abutment, that are, oh, it's in the vicinity, or maybe there's groundwater, or maybe there's subsurface water, or maybe there's, you know, animals that go from one from your water to their water or what have you, then you're immediately in an area where people don't know whether they could be committing a crime uh, by building or by uh, releasing liquids or what have you. So uh, what are the implications here beyond navigable waters? Uh, we've had a lot of regulatory agency cases in, in the recent terms of the U.S. Supreme Court that have sort of hemmed in the ability of agencies to regulate, most notably this last term. So, you know, what are the implications of this case? Uh, there's an interesting statutory interpretation wrinkle here. Uh, there's been many cases where the court has, I think, correctly reined in the ability of agencies to shift the meaning of statutes after the fact. Here, there's a question of can Congress, in an entirely different provision of law, shift or shed light on the meaning of a statute after the fact? So why did was there so much debate about the meaning of the word adjacent? It's not in the definition of the navigable waters. It's in a separate statute portion of the statute passed five years later talking about what states can regulate. And there it mentions uh, waters of the United States and uh, wetlands adjacent thereto. Uh, and I think uh, Damien Schiff really made a good point that if you're focusing more on that than an, on the actual definition in the statute of waters of the United States, uh, you're sort of letting the tail wag the dog a little bit. And you're sort of allowing, uh, even if you accept that Congress had that in mind, they did not amend the actual definition of waters of the United States. Um, so certainly, even if that's accepted, that doesn't uh, really hurt Pacific Legal Foundation's case, since a plausible definition of adjacent is touching. But it's still interesting to see what the court does with that and how much weight, if any, uh, they decide to put on that other statu statutory provision. Uh, Charles, this case is about clarity and uh private people being able to do what they want within bounds on their own private property. And it doesn't seem, at least in my hearing of it, maybe you heard something very different. Uh, it doesn't seem like the Sacketts are going to get the kind of clarity that you and I might hope for. Well, I, I think there's a good possibility. It, at the very least, I think no matter what the Supreme Court does here, it seems one significant positive takeaway from yesterday is that the all of the justices seem skeptical of this significant nexus test and the way that it creates this extraordinarily broad authority for the federal government and this essentially uh, unknowable scope of, of federal jurisdiction. So uh, 
certainly if the Sackett's test would be adopted, that would bring significant clarity to landowners. But simply jettisoning the significant nexus test and coming up with something different, I think, would go a very long way because the last 15 years since 2006 have really demonstrated uh, just the, the extraordinary cost that the significant nexus test imposes on landowners. Charles Yates is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Tommy Berry is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 